Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's a sign of the times, and your love for me is getting so much stronger. It's a sign of the times, and I know that I have to wait much longer. You've changed a lot somehow from the one I used to know. For when you hold me now, you feel like you never want to let me go. It's a sign of the times. That song is A Sign of the Times. It's a Petula Clark song. We're going to be talking about Petula Clark today on the show. Uh, this part of the show, we're live, at the, we're, we're recorded live at the Terrace Theater in Chester, Connecticut to talk about the Goodspeed Theater's musical production, A Sign of the Times. It uses songs made famous by Petula Clark, but also some songs by some other amazing performers uh, like the Vogues and Dusty Springfield and Janice Ian and, let's see, Marvin Gaye, uh, just tremendous uh, songs from that that period. So uh, we're going to meet two of the people behind this. Uh, Bruce Valanche, writer, actor, comedian, Hollywood Square, former ex-Hollywood Square. I I think that's being like being an Olympian. You're always... You're always a Hollywood square. You never stop, really. Once, once you're out of the rehab facility. Yeah, that's right. You, you've got your medals, anyway. Uh, and uh, he, of course, played Edna Turnblad in Hairspray on Broadway. And there's even a documentary about him called Get Bruce, uh, which is a documentary by the Weinstein brothers. He wrote the book for this uh, uh, production, Sign of the Times. Joseph Church is with us, conductor, composer, pian- pianist. He is the music director for a little show called The Lion King on Broadway and the music supervisor, conductor, and vocal arranger for The Who's Tommy. Uh, on Broadway, and now the music supervisor and orchestrator for Sign of the Times. So, Bruce, actually, I was here for the New Musicals Festival in January, up, actually up the road in East Haddam, and that's when you first talked about this, and we talked about it at dinner, and you had talked to Petula Clark, right? You had yes. had to, uh, talk a little bit about what your, uh, your contact with her I did a benefit with her. We did a, a benefit for ALS in, uh, in Los Angeles, and I went over to her and I said, well, I'm writing this musical and we're going to be doing it at Goodspeed next summer. And she didn't know about it because she didn't write a- any of the songs, really. Right. They were written by uh, Tony Hatch and Jackie Trent, most of them, who were her creative partners and producers. And um, she listened very carefully and she, I told her what it was about. And she said, oh, well, thank God it's not about me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, she's like, she's not Gloria Estefan or Carol King who, you know, has a show about her. She doesn't want to. And I said, well, of course it's not about you. We're, we're doing, uh, doing it another way. She said, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just so happy it's not about me because I, I'm, I'm boring. Mm. And I said, no, you're not boring, Petula. You're absolutely charming. She said, I live in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of cheating. <laughs> I, I was about to say, well, you, you have to be boring to live in Switzerland. I guess. It's on the passport. Well, they help so. you. They help you. <laughs> really, they'll give you yeah. boring 101. Yeah, once right? you get there, I think they, they <laughs> cluster right around you. So that, that, then, then we talked more about, about what the show was. But uh, she was delighted it wasn't about her, and she liked what it was about. She liked the idea that it was about a girl from a small town who goes in, to New York in the 60s and um, discovers the world of mad men and, and by the end of the show is uh, empowered, has become a feminist, has become part of her generation. She thought that was a great idea. 
And Joseph Church, as you sort of hunkered down with this music, would have all been music that you knew. I've been listening to it a lot lately, not just the Petula Clark stuff, but, but the other stuff that goes with it. One of the things I'm struck by with her, but also a lot of the singing of that time is, there, how can I say this in a nice way? You know, there's, I can't think of a nice way to say it. So, um, you know, American Idol has sort of produced this generation yeah. of singers who are drowning in right. melisma yeah. and effects and all kinds of uh, extraneous wailing and adornments. And you listen to Petula Clark get through a song. And yeah, she's got dynamics and vibrato and stuff like that. But the music of that time was kind of great tune, good voice, let her rip. Great charts, yeah. great orchestrations, uh, good production, absolutely. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons that the music appeals to the actors who are performing in this show on a theatrical level and, a, and on an emotional level. They are so used to the sort of uh, free-form, as you say, melisma-laden American Idol approach to songs, and these just don't really require them. The lyrics are a little bit more grounded, a little bit more specific maybe, a little bit more relatable character-wise. The melodies are constructed. They're not top-lined as what happens today. You know, these days people get in the studio and they lay down a track and then they lay down a track on top of a track and then somebody will come in and sing and improvise for a few hours on top of that and suddenly it's a hit single and they'll throw it into the it's a hit bin or the it's not a hit bin or whatever. And these weren't thought of in these ways. These were thought of as constructed songs. Let's record it and see if it works. Recording is was so much bigger a deal in 1965 because you really did have to assemble 30 to 40 musicians and producers all in a studio and pay them all. Nowadays you can go to your bedroom and flip a switch and hit a few buttons and you have beautiful tracks. So it's a different sort of value system that I think that uh, our actors respond to and our audiences respond to, too, in the songs. Although there's some way in which doing that, you get a different kind of song. Like one of the non-Petula Clark songs in this show, Bruce, is the Shoop Shoop song. Mm -hmm. And there's something yeah. very... You, you can sort of feel that that song came about in the way that he just described, right. too. Right, yeah, exactly. You couldn't exactly. just do that with a bunch of computers. No, yeah. No, um, it had to be people in the, in the studio making noise. And right. there was always something novel about every song. Every song had to have some little special nugget about it. And that's a great little example, the little xylophone with the giant reverb on it in that song is so distinctive. And people in our audiences actually respond to that. When they hear the bump, 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 bump <laughs> solo in the middle, they start, well, I know that sound. You know, <laughs> yeah. And it's not just the, it's the sound of a particular melody played on a particular instrument, not... Hmm the beginning of something but the end of something. Do you get a sense of, like, okay, so she told you that her life was boring, she lives in Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, like, who... I, I, have, I listened to her songs religiously in 1965. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no idea who this woman is. I mean, did you... You've spent some time with her now. Did you, do you have a sense of Petula Clark? Yeah, she, she was a pop singer. I mean, she, she just liked... She was a belter. And she liked to sing that way. And, you know, they, uh, because she had a, a string of hits and because she was British and pretty, and it was the 60s, they tried to turn her into Julie Andrews. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, they put her in big musicals, Finian's Rainbow, which was a flop, and, and um, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which was sort of a semi-hit. And it, it just didn't take. She didn't take as a movie star. And the, her pop era was ending. Mm -hmm. So she had made a lot of money and she retreated and reemerged a few years later uh, on the stage mm -hmm. and did every musical in the West End. She did Sound of Music, King and I, 
um, Showboat, uh, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, she's, she's done them all. And she came to Broadway with Blood Brothers, Blood Brothers right. the, which was a British show. Yep. And so she kind of found a home there on the stage because the, her kind of music wasn't being recorded anymore. Prior to her recording career in Britain, though, she cut her teeth in France as a chanteuse, I yeah. think, in the line of um, Piaf and Jacques Brel and right. yeah, that she, sort of thing. But She recorded everything in French, too. Yeah. She was yeah. kind of, you know... I, I was astonished by that. I, Celine, I, yeah. before there was Celine. Getting ready to do this show, I typed her name into Tidal, which is a streaming service. Yeah. Half the things that came back were in French. Yeah. Right. I had no idea. Yeah. So, so that was all before the, the big pop She didn't really off. start her pop career until she was mid-30s or early-30s. Yeah. 30s. Right. yeah. Right. Like a slate bloomer and then by she today's standards. The French, because she had that audience yeah. and lived in Switzerland. And lived in Switzerland. <laughs> right. So she knew how to order. <laughs> um, so um, we're going to play a song. This is the song that I walked out of the theater when I saw this show singing. We'll just play a little bit of a song by Petula Clark. This isn't one of the gigantic, huge mammoth charters. It's called Couldn't Live Without Your Love. Shoulder there for me to cry on And the arms alone that I'm without you All I ever do is think about you No one knows if you're so understanding Even though my love is so demanding Every time you look at me Then you know we both agree That no other love would be So the minute I said that, there was a little huddled conference over here. So, Joe Church, what were you and Bruce well, saying? Well, we, we completely fooled you. The reason you walked out humming that song is because we played that as our audience exit music. Oh, that, So that, that was the last that thing you heard. So ah. it isn't that it was all that memorable. It's just we planted it in your brain, yeah. not so subliminally, as you left the theater, yeah. as you got into your car, as you took the first sip on that cocktail. And with the cocktail, it washed into your system right. and stayed with you for the next 24 hours. I feel so... You probably woke up humming it the next morning Yeah, I feel well. so manipulated <laughs> and, <laughs> and Congratulations, gullible. Bruce. Yeah, Job well yeah, done. Yeah, you, <laughs> I hope you guys feel really good about yourselves right now. We do. Uh, no, I mean, everything's it, clicking. It's yeah. because, I mean, it's, it's the legendary second song. Yeah. You know, in, in every musical, there's the second song, which is the song nobody listens to. And, the, I mean, there are many famous second songs, but... but uh, it's, it's just like, it's, it's a terrible spot because you're following the opening song, which, of course, everyone's riveted on. Right. And then now you have to follow it up with something. So it's usually some kind of, in this it's case, it's, it's a little romantic thing between the two principles. But it is, I agree, it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorites yeah. from her catalog. It's adorable. Joe, I don't know how much you looked at all this, but I, one thing that I discovered was three or four of these songs are gigantic hits with these huge elephant-sized footprints uh, on the pop music scene. And a lot of the other ones that are terrific, they were like, they charted at like 20 or something. You know, it was a very competitive pop music universe at the time. In a way, it sort of gives you, even if you think you know Petula Clark's music, there's a whole bunch of songs that charted that were singles that flew under the radar a little bit. Well, yeah, I, I, we did our due diligence. Uh, Richard Robin and Bruce and I, we... Looked through our Billboard Top 100s. We did a whole lot of listening. I 
unearthed my 45 collection and everything, everything else. And the show was from 65. Yeah, right. I mean, we're all, all it's a, yeah, maybe the end of 64 to the top yeah, of 66. Yeah, we had a it's parameter. Really it couldn't be yeah. on either side of it. It had and to be we rejected We rejected some songs that were way too late, and we rejected mm. some oh, that were yeah. way too early. But it, the, really, the ultimate barometer was the, the sound of the song. It's I brought in a song from Laura Nero's first album yeah, called right. I Never Meant to Hurt You, mm -hmm. which was Barbara Streisand had a hit on. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. But... It was for the Don Draper character to yeah. sing, yeah. and it was kind of weird that he was singing it. And in fact, we don't have a song in that spot anymore. Right. But and it, it also sounded, I don't know, like out of some other pop exactly. universe. Mm -hmm. that was we, had, we had How Can I Be Sure in there for yeah, a little while, was which was 1965, and that didn't really They were fly. all from the, the same period, yeah. which was fascinating yeah. that in the spectrum of pop music, things sounded so different. As we end this segment, we're going to, in our next segment, our resident musicologist, Steve Metcalf, is going to sit down at the piano and pull apart two of these songs, Don't Sleep on the Subway and I Know a Place. We're going to end this segment, Joe, with a song called You Better Come Home, which, you know, is one of these Petula Clark songs that I didn't absorb somehow. I don't, I don't know if you want to see anything before the, we play There were two it. of those for me. Uh, one was Call Me and the other yeah. was You Better Come Home. Who I, I was convinced that Call Me was a Burt Bacharach and Hal right. David song. It just has that sound mm -hmm. and... Probably more people know Call Me from one line in When Harry Met Sally, mm -hmm. when I believe Billy Crystal leaves his fourth or fifth answering machine message on Meg Ryan's yeah. machine and sings Call Me, right. and then the third time sings Call Moi. And every so often I'll hear people in the audience go, Call Moi, <laughs> along with that third line. Uh, these were songs that were a little bit less familiar to me, but they just rang a bell. I obviously had heard them before. They're, they were in there somewhere. And these two, absolutely, You Better Come Home, is best known for Baby Come Back to Me. Bum, 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 bum. And that's probably what everybody knows, which is so odd, yeah. because it's buried in the end of the right. bridge. But that's more of a hook in that song than probably anything else except maybe the title line. I think it's a tremendous song. We're going to play it here at the end of the segment. But before we do, uh, adorable, cute Chester audience, give yourselves a big hand and a big hand also for Joseph Church and Bruce Valanche. Petula Clark, take us out. We decided to have a conversation about Tony Hatch, who wrote the music of Petula Clark, with Steve Metcalf, our resident musicologist, who, like Petula Clark, lives in Switzerland. Here we are in his Fortress of Solitude. So I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about Tony Hatch's song, Don't Sleep in the Subway, which is really, I think, a very complex and interesting song in, in many ways. And there's one basic idea which applies to a lot of his music, and the idea is that he uses the interval of a third 
to build his harmonic and, and melodic ideas. And just to be very quick about it, so the interval of a third, as it sounds, is uh, the distance between three no notes. So if you started on middle C, a third would be, a major third would be up to E, and then a minor third would be one step lower to E flat. And of course you can go in the other direction as well. You can start on C and go down a third to A natural, or down to A flat for a major third. And in any case, Hatch uses this interval as a sort of a building block of, of many of his songs, and, and uh, particularly so in Don't Sleep in the Subway. Now, uh, let me just uh, sort of walk through this song. It has essentially four components, and we'll look at each of them in turn. The first component I will simply call a sort of lyrical fanfare, which kind of introduces the song and gets everybody quiet, and it goes... And that's really all there is. It just introduces the song, which then goes into the verse of the tune, which goes. And, you know, just to interrupt, you and I are collectors of obscure words that don't work their way into popular lyrics very often. I feel <laughs> as though wherefore is used here <laughs> and in very few other songs. The why or the wherefore, that's true. That's, that's true. I'd have a hard time thinking of another one. But melodically, that's, you know, that's a very nice little sort of infectious pop tune. And it's repeated, and as usually is the case in these songs. So it ends up the second time... Now, at this point, Hatch does something that he frequently does, which is to give us a kind of bridge section. In fact, he gives us two that sort of build the tension and the drama to what is eventually going to be the chorus of the song. And they go... So here's the first one. Just to make sure that the drama builds sufficiently, he repeats it, modulated, of course, up a third. Can now, I just stop and ask a question about that? I, yeah. I notice a lot of his songs do modulate up, you know, through. That's something he seems to like to do. And there's something I think you would concede faintly theatrical about that, too. There's... You know, when you see these songs on stage, you think, yeah, they, they seem like they might be from shows. They have some of those elements. Well, that's true. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it's partly because Hatch is kind of a pre-rock generation guy. As a matter of fact, Petula is. You know, she was already in her 30s when she was singing these things. But you're right. That, that is a device that it sort of derives from Tin Pan Alley and, and Broadway writing. And it's interesting to see it kind of married in the in the rock era, but in any case, there's a there's a further thing that he does after the second of those bridge figures. We're we're at this point. We're at a D chord, or actually a D seven chord, which in conventional songwriting uh, terms would lead us back to G major, which was the original key we started off. So if that, that would sound like that. Like 
So conventionally, we, we would go to... But we don't. Instead, Hatch goes... goes to what turns out to be the key of B flat, which interestingly enough is related by a third to, to D, which was the key of our second bridge figure, and related by a third in the other direction to the key of G major, which we started in. So it gets to B flat, which, which is where the song ends. got a little bit of an issue on his hands because he's done now one whole iteration of the song but it's only about a minute of music so in classic songwriting fashion he's got to figure out a way to get back to the whole second iteration with a new set of lyrics and how does he do this well he re-invokes the idea of that little fanfare at the beginning First in B-flat, which is where we are, but then to get us back to G, back to the original fanfare, which leads us, in fact, to the home key of G and the second iteration of the song. I would say here, here yeah. he kind of anticipates Tom Brady, too. He says, it hurts when your ego is deflated. <laughs> right. But, but it's a very ingenious little device that he's, he's used here because he starts off with this, you know, rather, rather conventional ditty at the beginning. And then with these, these little bridge passages, he sort of builds the momentum. And then he completely fools us by, by uh, entering the key of B flat, which is where the song begins. It's quite unusual for a song to start in the key of G, go through B major and then D major, and then end up in B flat. And B flat is, in fact where the song concludes. So it's... Uh and then, of course, like most 60s tunes, it has a fade-out fade out ending, which I will not render here. But a very clever song. I also wonder if you could say anything about the marriage between Hatch and Petula Clark. It seems as though maybe you need... I wasn't a, aware that they were married. No, no, either. not the, the, the artistic marriage between the two of them. Because it seems to me you need a particular kind of singer to realize this. I mean, this is a terrific song that you just played. But it's not covered by a lot of people. It's kind of a Petula Clark song that almost nobody else ever does. And I'm wondering if that's because she had a particular... Well, as you say, she wasn't really a rock and roll kid either. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, she uh, used to be called something like, you know, the first lady of British invasion music. And, you know, most of the British invasion stuff was blues-based, even American rock and roll-based rock music. I mean, the Stones, the Beatles, everybody. And somewhat unusually, she was this former, you know, child star, had a, had a career in Europe actually had had a number of French language hits and, and really wasn't a classic sort of rock era figure at all. And, uh, you know, the songs that she's doing 
some people have called symphonic pop. I mean, these were big production numbers with strings and with, with a chorus in the background. And it was kind of against the grain of what was going on musically in many ways. And so that may be one of the reason, reasons why these things aren't covered that often. But it's also the case that she put a stamp on these that make it hard to, you know, to do a, a, a cover, I think. I think they're also a little bit vocally demanding, too. I mean, with the modular. Well, that one certainly is. Yeah. That one certainly is. You know, I don't know whether, as we were talking earlier, I think Downtown has been covered now by a bunch of people. And that's um, a song people really can sing, or at least they think they can. Whereas, I mean, a lot of these songs, like Round Every Corner has, you know, there's a lot of vocal production you need to do even to hit that first part of the song. I, I feel like she is a little bit different from rock and roll singers that way, too, that she's got some technique you don't always hear. Yeah, she did sort of, I think, straddle the line between the, the old pop, you know, diva tradition and and rock and roll in a way that not too many people did. I want to say one word about Tony Hatch's craft as a songwriter with respect to this idea of third-built harmonies or third-built melodies. One of the other big hits, actually I think her second big hit in the States, was the song I Know a Place, and which starts something like this. Sort of a conventional intro of its time. Well, we said a little earlier in our unrecorded conversation, it's sort of the boy from New York right, City. Right, right. Which... But in keeping with this idea of third building for your, for your basic uh, sort of architecture of the song, this one does it in a different way. that chord, we get into the key of E major as opposed to C major, which is where we started, and rather seamlessly, and then the song begins again in E major. And he modulates up from... E major up to G major, which becomes, uh, not to get too technical, the dominant back to C. So, so this idea of third-built songs, which, which is not unique to Tony Hatch. I mean, it's been used over the centuries in classical music and pop music. But, but he really, uh, you know, there's a way to do it sort of artfully and not so artfully, and, and Tony Hatch does it artfully. So I feel as though, in terms of touting the merits of a place, a place that you could go, <laughs> when you go downstairs, there's some tables and chairs. <laughs> to me, that's the bare minimum, right? I mean, that doesn't get me that excited. There's tables and chairs. Well, I, actually, I was thinking, too, about the sort of quaintness of those lyrics. There are girls and boys and an atmosphere of its own somehow. A actually, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure... Who wrote those lyrics? He, he did some lyrics with uh, the woman who later became one of his wives, but I'm not, I'm not sure who, who did the lyrics to, to that song. But, but they do, I mean, they are a little bit redolent of their 50-year-old time and place. Well, I, but there's also some, there is something a little bit nice that you, you sort of can picture maybe Workaday London and because there's this whole line, you know, when the evening comes and the, the shop and store put the lock on the door. There's this kind <laughs> of sense, you know, people are going to go out now and have a good time. 
Well, you know, I sometimes work with the kids up at the Hart School Music Theater Department, all, all these brilliantly talented young singers and, and actors and actresses, and uh, I, I've noticed that the young women that we've worked with and that have uh, performed at our Hart School Gala, they all seem to know downtown, and they all seem to know there's a place. Mm-hmm. They, they don't necessarily know a lot of the other Pet Clark songs, but they know those two. So, so those seem to be holding up as, as standards. One other thing I'd ask you about, too, listening to some of the Tony Hatch songs, and, and some of them are a little bit different from the ones that we're talking about right now, but they, they remind me a little bit of Backrack. You know, there's some way in which his Backrack has one foot in rock and roll and one foot in some kind of show tune Tin Pan Alley sound, too. Yeah, I agree, and that's been a, a point made by various folks. I, I do think that Bachrock's, I mean, if you really step back a couple of paces, Bachrock's songs are a little bit more harmonically adventuresome than Tony Hatch's. But if you look at, say, Bachrock's tunes for Promises, Promises, they really do resemble, in many ways, these songs. And there's also the thing that, you know, just as Bachrock found his, you know, sort of ideal interpreter in Dionne Warwick, who, who then, I think the two of them helped each other find their voice, as it were. I, I think the same was obviously true with Pet Clark and, and Hatch, you know. I mean, supposedly, I mean, the story supposedly is that Hatch was thinking of Downtown originally as a sort of a, an R&B ballad for the Drifters, and, and he played the melody for for Petula, and she said, you know, I really like that. If you could put some words that you know, would would be fitting for me to sing, I'll, I'll do it. And, of course, it uh, changed their lives. So I love these songs. You love these songs. I mean, is there sort of a, a sentiment in the world of music about what kind of songwriter Tony Hatch was or how good he is? Well, I think there is now, um, but I think at the beginning of Pet Clark's stardom in the middle 60s, there there wasn't. You know, Downtown was a big hit in the States, and then uh, the, the follow-up to that was I Know a Place. And I think most people, even who paid attention to the business, thought, well, you know, these are nice, infectious little pop tunes and very pleasant, and Pet Clark is a charming performer and so on and so on. But nobody, I think, paid it much attention beyond that. And then a couple of years later, the famously curmudgeonly Canadian pianist Glenn Gould did a radio show. Gould was was famous for sort of trashing everything and everybody and and was (laughs) beloved in many circles for that very reason. But he was also a brilliant guy and a brilliant pianist. So on this radio show, which then got transcribed and distributed pretty widely, he made the, even by his standards, sort of startling assertions, number one, that the Beatles were not that interesting. This was not something people were saying in 1967. And secondly, that he found Petula Clark's music captivating and that the songs that she was doing by Mr. Tony Hatch were really exceptionally fresh and original songs. And and this really did get everybody's attention, at least in the music world, because Gould didn't like anybody. And if he thought Tony Hatch's songs were, you know, worth uh, thinking about, then, then maybe we needed to look into it. So I would say it was from that point that people in the music business, and certainly among classical people, began to sort of check out Tony Hatch and see who this person was and discovered that, in fact, he was a very original and very inventive 
songwriter who had had a few little minor hits before Petula, but n- nothing major, and, and this really sort of made his career. And from that time on, I think people who pay close attention have been uh, very aware of just who Tony Hatch is. All right, Steve Metcalf, play us out with something. our conversation with Steve Metcalf at the Fortress of Solitude, which he sublets from Superman. I want to thank people who worked on this show. There were many of them. Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McNichol, Katie Tolarski, our intern, Leah Myers. And thanks to our friends at Goodspeed Musicals and the Terrace Theater for welcoming us down there despite their tight production schedules. Thanks especially to Elisa Hale and Jay Hilton. You'll hear us from the Terrace Theater when we get back from this break. Joining me on stage right now here at the Terrace are Bruce Valanche, writer, actor, comedian, Hollywood Square. We could talk about Hollywood Squares all day, but that wouldn't really be right. Uh, He's got his own documentary about him, uh, Get Bruce. Uh, He was at Turnblad and Hairspray on Broadway, and he wrote the book for A Sign of the Times. Also joining us on stage is Joseph Church, conductor, composer, pianist. He was the music director for this uh, little experimental downtown production. It was called The Lion King. It was like at the Vineyard or someplace like that. And then the music uh, supervisor, conductor, and vocal arranger for The Who's Tommy on Broadway. And he's currently the music supervisor and orchestrator for A Sign of the Times. So I want to, before we bring some of the singers up here, I want to talk a little bit more about how these songs work theatrically. So these are, a lot of these songs are songs that we know. I had, you know, the 45s of a lot of these songs, but they existed in a very freestanding way. You know, you put them on, you listen to them, there they were. In a way, what we're doing here is different. There's a plot, there's a plot that's unconnected to any particular known performer. It's all a bunch of fictional characters. So in a way, you're looking, you're taking the original emotive impact of some of these songs and maybe, what, doing something a little bit different with it? Uh, yes and no. I, I, think, I think the original impulse for writing the musical in the first place was the songs and the fact that these songs, although they were pop songs, radio songs, had something in their lyrics, something in their musical content that seemed to elevate them a little bit into another plane, something beyond just the radio song, just the pop hook and the the uh, happy beat and yeah, I can tap my feet to it. And uh, they also define an era so beautifully that it uh, really occurred to, I think, Richard Robin originally and then to Bruce, that these songs could be somehow cobbled into a series of songs that would make sense dramatically. But Bruce... I know one thing that you've said about this, and it's dawned on me, too. A lot of these songs, although they sound like pop songs from 1965, they also sound unusually theatrical. The songs that Tony Hatch wrote for Petula Clark, including The Other Man's Grass is Always Greener, that sounds like it ought to have come from a show. I know. When I, but when I first heard of that, that was my first thought was, what show was that from? Because right. I was a very musical comedy kid. Yeah. And so, you know, I, that was what I studied and listened to a lot. And I, I just assumed it. And all, all of her stuff had that same feel to it. It was, it was a lot of orchestral things going on in her records that wasn't going on in a lot of the pop stuff. We talk about the, the song, A Sign of the Times, has... The whole reason I love the song is because of... There's a, a phrase in it a musical phrase, which is, maybe my lucky star at last decided to shine. And 
horns came up behind right. it on the record that were so thrilling. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like you could just feel an orchestra yeah. coming out of the out of a pit. People in our or in our audiences respond to the orchestration like I've never seen yeah. before. Yeah. They'll hear a glockenspiel tone or they'll hear a particular piano pattern and that's what gives them the warm fuzzy feeling and not necessarily the melody. There's a lot in the orchestra. Yeah, no, I suddenly realized today, I mean, I've seen both of the shows that have been done here, Aurora the Grease Paint and then this one this summer. And one of the yeah. things that's happening is, and I don't know how you guys feel about it, but, but something Girls about the relationship that people have with this music kind of invites them to sing along with these songs. When, a lot when the radio had come on in my car when I was a little child in 1965, the only thing my parents would sing along with were Downtown and Don't Sleep in the Subway and The Other Man's Grass is Always Greener because these hooks were a little bit more, they weren't, yeah, baby, baby, she loves you, yeah, yeah. They had a little more substance to right. them. Before we bring one of the singers up to do The Other Man's Grass is Always Greener, Joe, this is a pop song that has, I don't know, what, five or six music... I mean, there's about five things that happen before you get to the chorus in yeah. this song. It's yeah. very... I mean, structurally... These are, these are structurally really interesting songs. They tend to modulate a lot, which is, yeah. which is always a mark of theater songs as well, and I think that's another thing that keeps them on the cusp between the two genres. Yeah, the, the orchestral appeal is tremendous, and one of the real challenges of this production was trying to create that sound with a five-piece orchestra, which really doesn't cut it, and with a synthesizer playing a lot of the string and horn lines, which is something we like to avoid because we can tell that these are emulated sounds. All right. So um, the two leading ladies, really, from this production, uh, Effie Ardima uh, and Crystal Lucas-Perry, are coming up. So, tell me about you. Well, my name is Cindy. Oh, right. I'm Tanya. And I'm from Centerville, Ohio, where I lived with my aunt ever since my parents, well... Got it. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this. All of this. Got it. By the way, how do you afford this place? I can't. That's why I'm advertising for a roommate. But I do pretty well. What do you do? Nothing illegal, I hope. <laughs> Not yet. I'm a professional token. What's that? It's 1965, honey. Everybody needs a black woman in their business, but just one. Now, I move around a lot, and there's a world of opportunity for us tokens. If I don't like the job I've got, there's always another company eager to put me on their team. Wow, that's pretty bold. I call it freedom, and it was only a subway right away. That was the first thing I realized when I left my happy Harlem home. See, uptown, I had to be black all the time. But downtown, hoo-hoo, I can be whatever I want to be. And what I want to be is fabulous. You think you can handle it? And if I can't? Well, you may find that Centerville had more to offer than you thought. Life is never what it seems. We're always searching in our dreams to find that little castle in the air. Worry starts to cloud the mind It's hard to leave it all behind And just pretend you haven't got a care There's someone else in your imagination You wish that you were standing in their shoes you change your life without much hesitation But would you if you really had to choose? So don't look around Get your feet on the ground Some are not, but 
just be thankful for what you got. Come on in, I'll show you around the apartment. You're gonna love it. Is it a walk up? It's a walk down. Well, this is it. Now let's go out and I'll really show you around. I'll be ready in a minute, but you might take a minute and a half. Many times it seems to me there's someone else I'd rather be Living in a world of make-believe To stay in bed till nearly three with nothing there to worry me Would seem to be the life I might achieve But deep inside I know I'm really lucky With happiness I've never known before And just as long as I'm in New York City I know that I could ask for nothing more Thank you so much. You know, Bruce, you've written all kinds of things for all kinds of people and obviously head writer for the Oscars so for so many different years. Is this the first kind of full-length musical for you? No, I had a huge flop. <laughs> I had, it was called Platinum. It was 1978. Yeah. And it starred Alexis Smith, who was, as you know, a big yeah. Warner Brothers star. And then she'd gone to Broadway in Follies and won a Tony and became a Broadway star, except that... Uh, you know, she wasn't the Broadway star we thought she was, and the show wasn't the show that, that we <laughs> planned it turning out to be. But it's, it's, it's a long story. But anyway, it, it was, a, it was a, a big flop. We ran 33 performances, and it's kind of, it sent me scurrying back to Hollywood because I realized I didn't want to get involved in anything. It, it's such a heartbreaker as a theater because you, in, you invest so much of your, of your time and energy and passion, and you have to be sure that everybody around you has got the money and the wherewithal and the same kind of passion you have for the project. And I, there were a couple of false starts for other musicals, but uh, this is the first one that I've actually sat down and written, and, and we got a production of it up. So, so you've got a show that's about a small a girl who comes from a small town uh, in uh, rural Ohio and comes to the big city and encounters uh, all the, the temptations and depredations <laughs> that are available in 1965. Right. But one nice thing about this, as you were kind of mining the material, and this is the material of Petula Clark, but also the Vogues and Dusty Springfield and mm -hmm. a song Janice Ian wrote when she was, I think, 14 years old or right. something. You've got all this material, but as you looked at the Petula Clark canon, in a way you kind of had you know, what they call in Disney the I Want song, right? We didn't realize we had one for a long time, and then we, we were bemoaning the fact that we didn't have quite the perfect I Want song, and then we discovered this song called Who Am I, which was staring at us the whole time, and we had it in the wrong place in the show. And we suddenly, when we pulled it out and made it the first number, we realized this is what she wants. She wants to know who she is. She wants to find herself. And that's what the show is about. 
All right, well, with uh, Joe Church on the piano, as, as he has been so far, uh, and with uh, Effie Artema, who plays Cindy in the show, uh, we're going to hear that song, Who Am I? The buildings reach up to the sky The traffic thunders on the busy street the pavement slips beneath my feet. I walk alone and wonder, who am I? I close my eyes and I can fly. And I escape from all this worldly strife, restricted by routine of life. But still I can't discover who am I I long to wake up in the morning And find everything has changed And all the people that I meet don't wear a frown But every day looks just the same I'm chasing rainbows in the rain All the dreams that I believe in let me down Far too high, for I have something else entirely free the love of someone close to me, unfettered by the world that hurries by. To question such good fortune, who am I? I long to wake up in the morning and find everything has changed, and all the people. Chasing rainbows in the rain All the dreams that I believe in Let me down I close my eyes and I can fly And I escape from all this worldly strife Restricted by routine of life But still I can't discover Who am I? Ah, to question such good fortune Who am I? Effie Artema. Thanks to Effie and to Crystal uh, Lucas Perry. You know, now that they've left, let's talk behind their backs. Uh, <laughs> just in the sense that I wonder what you're finding, both of you, as you introduce this music to a cast of people who are millennials. What are they saying about the music? Well, they don't talk to me about it. They talk to Joe talk about to Joe it. About I mean, he, well, he's the one who actually literally introduced them to it. Yeah. Yeah. Sat down at the piano and said, let's do it. It's surprising, though, how many of them knew uh, many of the songs, at least. Really? I, have, I have a 22-year-old daughter, and uh, it just I think by listening to the playlists, as it were, that we listen to, they absorb some of this material that we continue to listen to after all these years. But they also, I think they find it appealing on the same levels that, that we do. It's, it's a little bit more interesting than what they hear on the radio today. 
also there was a there was less music then. There was less music available. Now there's such a wash of it in all kinds of genres, uh, uh, wider ranges of likes. And among those likes are what they think of as oldies or their parents' music or something like that. And this has great appeal for them, I think, on some level. Well, Bruce, I think the the other difference is since we are now going to be old farts for just a few minutes here, <laughs> is that you sort of waited for music. On the, as you listened to the radio oh, back yeah. in those days, you waited for the song that you liked to come up, uh, and and then you maybe you did buy a forty-five that mm-hmm. had you know it, it had an A side and a B side, and I mean music now sort of streams at you all kinds of different ways. Right. You can assemble a zillion different playlists. I don't know. A song kind of had a potency maybe under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, it it did. It had yeah. more. I mean, but but today there's still there'll be a song that will catch on that suddenly everybody is doing. Right. The stuff that I introduced them to was with the lifestyle things from 1965 that don't exist anymore. I mean, one of the big laughs that we get in the show is uh, in the middle of a song that somebody is singing to somebody else on the telephone, the operator comes on and says, please deposit 65 cents. (laughs) And originally it was for three more minutes, and I said, for three more verses. The thing of it is, they laugh at the 65 cents. I mean, the kids in the show have never had that experience. And so they don't know what that is to have the opera. They don't know what it is to, to, to say, I'll call you tonight when the rates are lower. They don't know what right. that means. Or I can't call you because I'm in California right. and the long distance right, yeah. is too expensive. And, and, right. and so these are all elements of a life in 1965. You know, there's, I mean, 65 was... was uh, a watershed year. It was when a lot of political activism started for people. Demonstrations mm-hmm. began. I mean, civil disobedience was taking hold and all of that. So all of that is relevant to today. So the younger ones are, are realizing how much the world was like it, it still is, like it was, and, and how different it was at the same time. So we have to end this show and end this uh, wonderful visit. You know what? I, I, I have an inspiration here, just to sort of make the point, and it, even maybe to show them what happens kind of at the end of this show. So audience, uh, we're going to show them, the people listening to the, uh, to the radio, what happens at the end of the show. Are you ready? When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go. Okay, that was terrible. All right, let's start over again. Yeah. Was that not a good key for you? Okay, take it. <laughs> and this is what happens every night, too. They get past the they're, downtown. They're lost there. All right, a big, a big hand for our people up here on stage. Thank you, Chester, Connecticut. The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles.